So, what would you little maniacs like to do first? Welcome to the Circuits of Time. It's season two. So find the nearest bra, place it on your head, and let's party on, dude. Welcome, everyone, to a brand spanking new season of The Circuits of Time. I am JD, and I'm here, as always, with my good friend, Jaff Dog. You took your time, Jaff Dog? Well, I was just uh, really savouring the moment, JD. Uh, this is great to be back with our, with our new season, straight out of the pack with our, with our, with our uh, rock'em sack'em jetpacks. <laughs> You said you said it, Chris. It, it's been a couple of months, but we thought we'd have a little bit of a hiatus and we'll come back with a brand new season and a hell of a lot of 80s movies to get through. And uh, we, we think we've started off with a good one, but we'll come to that in a little while. Um, how are you anyway? I'm very well, JD. It's really good to hear your voice again. It's been a long while. Just can't wait to delve back into that archive of films which we've got. Uh, you may have seen the the trailer. That's the listeners, not you, JD. You're the one who put the trailer together. <laughs> but the trailer for some of the films which we've got coming up, all classics to look forward to. I haven't seen Toxic Avenger in there just yet, but hey, maybe one day. No, I'm sure we can sneak that in at some point in the future. I kind of threw that together quickly on an iPhone. I know it's a bit amateurish, but I think it it, it did the job anyway. Don't give um, yourself down, JD. Oh, no, none of that. I'm just, as I say, it, it, I just get excited by the possibilities. I mean, you know me, I like some of the more B-movies from the 80s. Howard the Duck will make an appearance this season. Um, in fact, I'm hoping before the end of the year, but I might have to run that one by yourself um, off camera. Well, I've fought it for nearly two dozen episodes, but I think the inevitable is going to uh, catch up with me one day. It's going to change your life. But look, without further delay, let's jump back into the to the wonderful world of 80s movies with a film you may recognise from the following sound. And if you didn't guess it from that, in which case you must have been born yesterday, Jeff Dog, what AT movie are we going to be discussing? The Lost Boys. The Lost Boys, and what a movie to kick off season two. Uh, tell us a few things we ought to know about The Lost Boys. A few factoids about the movie. Well, it was released in 1987, a sketchy year for films, which I'm sure we'll get to talk about later. It was produced by Richard Donner of Superman fame. And it was directed by Joel Schumacher, later of Batman and Robin Infamy. And it was released and produced by Warner Brothers Pictures. Uh, July 1987, summer hits, critical commercial success. And it grossed over $32 million, chicken, chicken feed nowadays. But back then, on a budget of $8.5 million, a great increase. It really was. And let me just cross off chicken feed, because that's one of the buzzwords that you have yeah Reaganomics will make an appearance but chicken feed is another one I've ticked that one off for season two you've done your job there Joel Schumacher I mean we only lost them last year didn't we we did yes uh, unfortunately I've not lost uh, some of the films he later produced 
You know, you, you say the name Joel Schumacher and it's quite a, a well-renowned name. And it's funny because I only had a look at his kind of filmography if you like, the other day and I was surprised. It was a bit scattered in quality, wasn't it? Yeah, you're absolutely right, JD. I mean, we had films like The Lost Boys, of course, the subject of our film now. Uh, but he later uh, produced uh, some sort of cult classics, really, films like 8mm with Nicolas Cage and Phone Booth in 2002. That was a very quiet uh, thriller back then. That also had Kiefer Sutherland in, by the way. Did you know that he directed Falling Down, the Michael Douglas film? I did see that one, yeah, yeah. yeah and of course, there's, some, there's, some, there's some crackle movies in there, as, as well as a few duds. Oh, well, I, I mean, I, I cannot help but think about the duds. Uh, the, the, the 1997 epoch of dreadfulness that was Batman and Robin will always be at the forefront of my mind. Yeah, and you know, it's not just Batman and Robin. He did Batman Returns as well, didn't he? I know. No, that was my, that was um, uh, Tim Burton. Do you mean Batman Forever? Oh, Batman Forever, you're right. I'm mixing it, up my Batmans. That wasn't that bad, actually. Uh, but, of course, by the time they got to, from 1995 to 1997, something had happened. And the actors thought that they were filming a toy commercial. I just there was so, the, the the transition from Tim Burton to Joel Schumacher, it just didn't work, did it? I know it's the Lost Boys episode, but we'll, we'll quickly divert just while we're on the subject of Batman. But number one and two had that gothic look, didn't he? And and, and Schumacher comes in, and it, it's almost like Batman in the middle of Mardi Gras. <laughs> Yeah, but actually, uh, it, it is quite linked to what we're talking about today because his style of cinematography, often very colourful, large, colourful palettes, a lot, very busy screen. And there were a lot of parallels, and I thought in The Lost Boys, in some of the scenes in particular, um, between that and some of those later films as well. So it was definitely part of his uh, uh, style, shall we say, as an auteur. And um, by the way, did he, did you know that he, he also directed St. Elmo's Fire? Yes, I did. Uh, in fact, that pops up, I think, in one of my talking points later, so we'll come to that. But anyway, let's let's move on. What is The Lost Boys all about? Hey, dirtbags. It's time for the movie review. Uh, so Peter Pan... Oh, actually, no, that's a different Lost Boys altogether. <laughs> Bill <laughs> follows uh, Michael, whose name we're going to hear an awful lot in this film, and Sam, uh, played by Jason Patrick and Corey Haim, who moved to the uh, fictional coastal town of Santa Clara, uh, only for Michael, the older sibling, uh, to fall fall in with a local gang, who it turns out just so happened to be. You know how these things go, JD. They're a vicious group of vampires, led by uh, David, played by Kiefer Sutherland, and his his goons. And Sam, who is the younger brother, uh, sees what's happening to his older brother, and rescues him. I won't give give away too much of the plot now, but aims to rescue him at least from. <laughs> This uh, vicious group of uh, motorcycling, uh, mayhem-causing vicious vampires with the help of two local vampire hunters. Great stuff. I know just at the beginning you called it Santa Clara. I think it's Santa Carla. Correct me if I'm wrong there. Oh, forgive me. Uh, you're forgiven. But, you know, you're right. It's um, it's the fictional town. It's uh, I mean, we, we'll come to the opening shots in a minute because the, the film really does pull you in to this coastal town, doesn't it? It definitely does, JD. I can't wait to get talking about the early scenes in the film. Well, I'll tell you what, then, no further delay. Let's kick right into the movie. And we'll start, of course, with that introduction. It's something me and you pick up on quite a lot with some of our 80s films. 
some of them give us a lot of clues about what the film's about. And sometimes you just, you know, want to admire them. And, and I think you certainly do with The Lost Boys. I mean, we have, number one, we have that music, which we can uh, talk about as we go through the film, because the soundtrack, obviously, is as much a part of this film as anything. But that opening shot where we kind of, it's like a bird's eye view over the water as we approach the carnival. It's fantastic, isn't it? Yeah, the opener, I mean, you, you just know you're in for for some kind of uh, ride in the 80s when when it starts off at a fairground. I'm thinking of films like Big, for example. Uh, you know you know something's going to happen at this uh, this carnival. You, you were thinking of films like, I thought you were going to say about three or four films then. Do you want to reel off a few more? <laughs> Well, you put me on the spot now, JD. I'm sure you can think of you too. Agreed. Go on. <laughs> right, moving on. Uh, we're soon introduced, of course, after that introduction, straight away, in fact, to our antagonists, which is a, a bold decision. I think that the first kind of, the first characters we see, isn't it? Um, and, and the striking thing about them, they look visually, you know, you can't take your eyes off them. There's a, an element of, you know, they're quite stylish, aren't they? Yeah, they're in that definite 80s category of uh, stylish bad guys who must spend an awful lot of time uh, preening the hair. Especially there's one of them, forgive me if I can't quite remember his name, but uh, he's got like a sort of Native American type look to him. Uh, He's got this real teased up like Motley Crue type hairstyle. Uh, And then there's the others as well. There's the main vampire, uh, Kiefer Sutherland, David. He looks like some sort of uh, Billy Idol wannabe. And then there's Alex Winter, uh, Bill. Our very own, very own Bill. Bill S. Preston Esquire, as he'll always be. Absolutely, with his uh, sort of curly ringlets. Oh, you must use an awful lot of uh, gel or something in there. <laughs> mm, yeah, I think uh, he plays he plays Marco in the, in this film. Marco. But um, they're being um, kind of ushered away by the security guard, aren't they, to, to get off the merry-go-round. And then, of course, it, this is followed by another point of view shot of the vampires. I think the, the difference, of course, with the initial shots and this one is that we kind of now know that this is the point of view of the vampires. It's it's them flying towards the security guard. And uh, they, I mean, we, let's assume they kill this guy, don't they? Well, there's an awful lot of murders that seems happening in this small town, as evidenced by the posters, which we see um, quite early on in the film. Lots of posters up for missing people, including the security guard from the first scene. So there's definitely something going amiss in this uh, small town of Santa, 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 it's not Santa Clara. Santa Carla, same letters. Santa Carla. But no, you're right. And I, I like the fact that the, the film goes that extra mile to kind of give you a little bit of information about, you know, the town. Um, something's not quite right. Um, and I think it does that really well. And then following that, the murder of the security guy, we have a third pan shot over the water. So within the first five minutes, we've had three similar but quite distinct uh, panning shots over the water. The difference with this one is, of course, it's daytime. Um, and this is, of course, our introduction to the uh, protagonists, Lucy, the mum, and their uh, two sons, Michael and Sam. Um, and, and I love this in- intro because it's them coming into Santa Carla for the uh, first, well, I assume it's the first time and of course, they, they drive past that sign, don't they? That says, welcome to Santa Carla. And as they look back, it's someone spray painted on the back of it. The mayor, the capital of the world. So again, we're getting an idea that, you know, things aren't going to be uh, as rosy as hoped. Yeah, it's a really nice touch, that actually, uh, in terms of the visual style. 
So the the billboard is actually really bright, really colourful, uh, very inviting, very very warm and welcoming. But as they go past it, it is it is literally like you see the other side of the coin and what's really happening. And it's just as stylish on the other side because the use of colour. I mean, somebody somebody put a lot of effort into this uh, graffiti and giving it a real nice visual touch where it does say those words, um, made, made a capital. Um, you know, what they're saying an awful lot there, just in that one small shot, which is you're going to see the other side of what this place is like. And then you get lots of really quick cut headshots of all the kind of various uh, uh, odd, odd bods, shall we say, you know, all the kind of wash-ups wash, wash and uh, uh, children of the sort of beat generation, perhaps, a uh, little 20 years down the line. And um, so, yeah, there's definitely something um, strange about this place. I think also... I, I was going to ask you about that opening scene where they're driving into Santa Carla and we we have a bit of a montage, don't we? We have uh, the people of Strange, Echo and the Bunnymen. And then it's, a, it's, it's almost like a two-minute montage of just people. Uh, I thought that was a really interesting choice. What, what was the film trying to tell us with that montage? Uh, it, so Joel Schumacher was obviously a, a sort of old older man, um, by, by the time he was making this film. So he would have been around in the late 60s when in um, uh, on the on the West Coast, um, you know, this sort of generation, like the, the Jim Morrison, the Doors generation. Uh, and if you've seen the film, The Doors, that's very similar in that sort of style. There's a lot of people, poets and artists and uh, people who are, are quite footloose and fancy free. Um, and they go and they seem to be drawn to these kinds of places, the coastal towns. Um, what it's saying is, in, in my opinion, is that you're going to get a mix of people here where people like the vampires um, or any supernatural being could could blend in um, with the various um, strange people around there. Because as we talked about the visual style of the, the villains, if that was in a nice area, they'd stick out like a sore thumb because they just look so obviously uh, strange. Whereas if you combine the, the odd people with the strange haircuts, with that soundtrack track of uh, the doors covered, covered by Echo and the Bunnymen. So, so essentially it's the perfect place for them to feed. Yeah, to completely blend in. Great stuff. Uh, the protagonists, uh, Lucy, Michael and Sam, are on the way to live with Grandpa. Do you want to say a quick few words about the Grandpa? He was an unusual character in this. I think he, he was, uh, in, 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 in many ways, the comic relief of the film. What, what did you make of his role and his performance? I think again, though this film's billed as a horror comedy, it's very light on the comedy, and and so I think just to break up the, the seriousness and the tone of the film, definitely some light-hearted parts needed. The grandpa character was probably based on somebody who Joel Schumacher knew, if not his own father, um, just someone who's a bit kooky, a bit out there, a bit strange. And I think at first, uh, it's implied that perhaps he's uh, just this maybe dumb old guy who doesn't know what's going on. But he's actually very clued up on what's going on, given the last few lines of the film, which we'll talk about later. Um, so I think he he knows a lot more than he actually lets on. Yeah, so the arrive at uh, the grandpa's house, we have that unusual scene where he's playing dead. Um, he's a bit of an oddball. Um, we get our first glimpse, I suppose, of Michael and Sam as brothers. Very close brothers, in fact. There's almost like a you know, an arm around the shoulder kind of brotherly love, isn't it? Which is, was, I suppose you could say it's nice to see. Don't know how close that is to real life, but they were pretty close brothers, so at least that was what was being depicted. I think what you see in a lot of films uh, where you've got two siblings and a parent who's split up, um, you know, 
perhaps they, they've been brought closer together through the events that have led them to leave uh, Phoenix, I think it is, to live with Grandpa. So, you know, that's probably been a bonding experience for them. Uh, I think now, if the film were released now, we'd, we'd, we'd know all about that and we get told all about it because we're, you know, uh, we're stupid as audience uh, as audiences and we can't be trusted with um, being able to imply something nowadays. Everything needs to be explained. I think in this case, it's just they've moved here. We don't need to know why they've moved here and they're close as a result. No, I think you're right. I think there's one line, I think, Lucy, uh, which she's talking to Grandpa, I think he says, I'm surprised you didn't come here sooner. And she says that, you know, about the, the, the headache of having to go through all that. I imagine she's talking about the legal roots of all the divorce proceedings. So it's just almost brushed off, which is nice because, as you say, we don't need the, the full story. It's not relevant to the story. Absolutely. Um, but before long, we are at the carnival um, and we are we are we obviously see saxophone guy, um, an impressive <laughs> an impressive specimen. Absolutely, you know, if we talk about films, cheesy scenes. This is it. This guy, I mean, there's no attempt made whatsoever to um, lip sync or anything. <laughs> He's just going for it full pelt. I believe this guy. I mean, he looks like uh, he looks like the British bulldog. Um, he does look like David uh, Boyce, <laughs> He's playing the saxophone. You know, he's got an unbelievable amount of uh, lube all over his body. <laughs> <laughs> he's probably the most famous unnamed character, perhaps, in, in 80s film. It's like, you say The Lost Boys, people will probably talk with the saxophone guy before they talk about any of the main cast. <laughs> I think he's billed as something like concert singer. <laughs> Yeah, maybe. Uh, but of course, it's at this carnival that Michael has his head turned by a female who who he later follows, or I don't know if that's at a later night. But he sees this mysterious girl, doesn't he? And he, he's drawn to her, and uh, she kind of gives him the eye bath, doesn't she? She does, yeah, which is, uh, you know, the complete opposite of my experience in life, JD, whereby uh, when I was a younger man, and perhaps I uh, uh, had the glad eye, on a on a on a, a female of the species, um, you know, normally she wouldn't have even noticed. Uh, in these kinds of films, they 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 tend to give that that knowing look back, don't they? Like where they're kind of looking at, they they're pretending to look at what they're looking at, but really they've got a smile on their face. I don't know about you, JD, but that's never happened in my life. Uh, maybe not, but I suppose it, it helps if you're not drooling, Chris. That's always the best. Ah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> And meanwhile, whilst the uh, brothers are at the carnival, you've got Lucy, who's meeting Max for the first time. Uh, Max is the owner of a, a video rental store, isn't it? Um, and she meets him as she's trying to... Well, she's, job, she's looking for a job, isn't she? Yeah, she's looking at the signs everywhere. She notices um, a lady putting a sign up for... A, a, it's probably the, the security guard from the very first scene's uh, wife. She gives her this sort of forlorn look. And then Lucy's like kind of looks away, like I, you know, I'm sorry, but I can't. I don't want to look. I don't want to upset you. And then she notices the sign that says uh, "Help Wanted," and that's when she goes into the video store to meet her. Is it Max's name? The guy who's uh, he looks a bit like John Hughes actually, and he's very very stylishly dressed as well. Yeah, he does look like John. There's a lot of lookalikes today. He does look like John Hughes. You're right. Um, got, uh, but it's, it's, like jacket on that's kind of like a um, 
an old man's suit jacket style with a like a pink shirt and the, the video shop saw 80 style there's loads of tellies playing That's right. or neon and things <laughs> but you know it's 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 good that you touched upon the woman putting the poster up because it's like within 20 seconds she kind of sees two posters and she kind of turns away from the first one and she's drawn to the second one it's like it's almost like what's going on in the town on a wider scale it's like they know there's a problem, but people are turning a blind eye to the fact that people are going missing left, right and centre. Um, but eventually she goes into the store, meets Max and, of course, Max's dog, Thorn. Eerie looking dog, really. But um, they hit it off, don't they? They have a bit of a connection. And um, as, as I say, she kind of comes across as this vulnerable woman. And I think it's written across her face that she's looking for the job. And Max is obviously going to be there to kind of offer some sort of uh, friendship as well as a job, isn't he? Yeah, it, it, it's Diane West. Uh, she's she's got the knack of playing the kind of characters um, that are quite uh, not naive, but always got a smile on the face and put a positive spin on things. Um, I'm thinking of uh, the character she plays in Edward Scissorhands as well. Yeah, no, I, I was trying to think what else she's been in. I think she's in Parenthood. I think she's one of the mums in there. Yeah. Um, but also on this um, busy carnival night. We don't just have Michael um, seeing the female. You've obviously got Lucy, who's uh, now been introduced to Max. But there's another introduction, and it's uh, Sam who meets the Frog Brothers for the first time. Uh, he stumbles upon a comic store, comic book store. Uh, I think it looks a great carnival. I mean, the video rental store, the comic book store, looks a hell of a lot of fun, doesn't it? Yeah, everyone's just enjoying themselves. There's a couple, although there's a couple of people in the comic book store who were sort of just passed out next to a television. <laughs> now, I feel like these two people pop up all over the place. It's like there used to be some something similar in wrestling back in the, like the Hulk Hogan era. Um, I'm not quite sure it made it into the Stone Cold Steve Austin era, but there was always like a man and woman like looking just like these two. I'm not quite sure whether it was the same two or it was like a something American that maybe we're ignorant to, but they, they looked familiar to me. Oh, okay. Might be worth investigating further, JD. Maybe so. Um, but the Frog Brothers, um, obviously they see Sam and they can tell he's a bit of an outsider. He, he certainly dressed differently to some of the local townsfolk. And they try and get him to read a comic called Vampires Everywhere. And I think this is the first point in the film, other than the fact that we kind of see the um, security guard killed this is the first time I think we're told of the reference to vampires, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. They, they, they know something a little bit more than what they let on. And as they say, you know, do you think we just run our parents' um, comic book store? Um, obviously, there's a, there's a lot more going on there. But they're kind of disturbed, aren't they, by uh, some of those people who are partying and enjoying the carnival to start pinching the, um, the comic books or something. And then the conversation ends. Yeah, that's right. Unfortunately for Michael, the female who he's following just so happens to join up with, his name's David, I don't know if we've named him yet, but the leader of the vampires, played by Keith Sutherland. Uh, so unfortunately for Michael, he's, I don't know if the film was implying at this point that, you know, this girl, star, her name is, is already taken. Is that what you picked up from it? Yeah, but it's also that kind of, uh, she's almost like a siren type of thing, like, like luring him in. Um, you know, bringing him into the into the fold almost. Um, do you know I actually dated a girl who looked a lot like Star. <laughs> she was very vampish, actually. Uh, I don't know whether she was trying to uh, 
<laughs> Bring me. See, in. I told you. So that's that long stare did work after all. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it's interesting the thing about Star because we, we, you would almost describe her as um, the, you know, a tragic hero. She's obviously I don't know how how they phrase it in the film, but she's she's not a proper vampire or she's not a full vampire until she's made the first kill or the first feed. But like you say, she's the one that lures Michael to the lost ball, to the vampires, so to speak. And then later on, she kind of tries to apologise. She's essentially, I don't know if that was a plan all along, um, whether she was, she'd seen Michael in this crowd and then she'd mentioned it to David. But is she a good character in that sense? Is the fact that she's done this tell us a bit more about her that maybe... She's not so kind as, as we might appear. Well, it depends on what the motivations are. You know, why do the Lost Boys wish to recruit Michael? You know, if, if it was if it was well-intentioned or what they feel is well-intentioned, then maybe she was just going along with it. But then is there a reason why they want to pull him in? Because they seem very fixated on him quite, quite early. And you think that, you know, this, the Lost Boys isn't exactly like... Uh, uh, you know, like the, the the People's Liberation Army. It's a, it's a. There's only four of them. So why? What is it about this one guy who they wish to recruit? Yeah, it, it's an interesting question, and and it's be, mostly because at the end of the film, and we can skip to the end just for this one bit. Um, obviously, there's a reveal that um, they wanted Lucy and uh, to be like the mother figure, and Michael and Sam to kind of join the crew. It's like. How did they know about this family unit? It's like, I assumed that the first time they see Michael was at this carnival. So I agree with you. It's like, I don't know whether the, that's a bit of a, a plot hole or, you know, a bit of a flaw in the script. Um, but we don't actually find out why they want, as you say, to bring in Michael. Other than, I think Star mentions at one point in the film, you know, David wanted Michael to be Star's first. don't know if she said kill or feed, but, um, the, there is a few mixed messages on that, and as I say, we'll come to it as we as we wait through the story. But I think Sam, I think the next day goes back to the comic book store, doesn't he? And he has another interaction with the, the Frog Brothers. Uh, it's it's a great scene because this is the point when they tell Sam that they're dedicated to a, a higher purpose, uh, truth, justice in the American way. Um, and of course, they hand him another vampire comic. I think he tries to bat, bat it off and say, you know, I don't like horror comics. Uh, and there's a great line by, I, can't, I don't know if it's Edgar or Alan, but they say to him, think of it more as a survival manual, which I thought was a great line. Yeah, because it's, it's, it's our way of being led in to what we're going to see next, because we don't know that these are vampires, obviously, at this point. We know there's something about them. They've got a weird aura about them. People are getting killed. Um, but we don't know, because also prior to this, um, I'd just like to touch upon it, just before this scene, we also get another one of Joel Schumacher's trademark uh, crash zooms or, or a quick pan, whatever you want to call it, when the couple are in the car and the, the lid gets ripped off the car and the camera sort of zooms out and then zooms back in again on them and then the guy gets lifted up out of the, the seat of the car. Do you know which scene I'm talking about? I do, yeah. Because I think, is she, is she trying to read the comic book or something? I, th- I thought she was... Tr- well, yeah, yeah, he's trying to... Uh, um, initiate yeah <laughs> yeah um, something like that no I do remember that scene in fact it was quite a, a frightening scene I think any scene where we see the vampires make a kill 
um, even if we don't actually see, you know, fangs going into net. It's still quite scary, and I think, it, you know, it's quite well done now. It's been filmed. And that one in particular, when they're dragged almost into the sky, it, it's horrible, really. It's really, really effective. Um, yeah, that's the word I, I thought of, JD, actually, is effective, really effective. It's also the night when Michael um, sees Star again, um, and they kind of agree to go and have a bite to eat. There's a bit of a connection. Um, unfortunately, of course, David arrives, um, and, and this leads to um, we could bill it as I suppose as the motorbike scene. I don't know if you want to give any thoughts on this scene. Uh, karate Kid. Uh, you know, that's yes. <laughs> That's all well, I can say really about that scene. It, it hasn't aged well. It's very corny. You know, we've just been talking about the effective scenes. It just does something about it. It's just, it's corny anyway. You know, they've obviously just thought, okay, well, well what was popular at the time? You know, what's rad at the time? And it would have been uh, scrambler bike racing or motorbike racing or whatever, um, as evidenced by, you know, films about that topic, like uh, it, Rad, I think it's one of them. I know that's BMX and... Um, but they were definitely scrambler bike films in the eighties. They just crowbarred. I felt that scene in uh, very similar to Karate Kid, um, and it doesn't look that good either. You know, it's very corny. Um, they've sort of got a wind machine going. It doesn't work for me. Well, listen, that's why we have opinions. I mean, I mean, I disagree, um, and I don't know. It's just because I grew up watching this film, and maybe because I love the song, uh, which plays in the background. But yeah, I like it. I, I think it's just kind of given us more of a, a nod to these vampires or the, this gang uh, are not, you know, who you think they are. It's uh, the, the leading Michael somewhere he's not prepared for. Because I think he says the line, doesn't he? You know, you don't have to beat me. You just have to keep up with us. And they're trying to almost entice him. They're trying to bring him in. Um, and it, it's obviously his lust for Star and, and, and his willingness to try and impress her. That kind of makes him go that extra mile. But I, I like it, what can I say? But maybe that's just a nostalgia on my part. Yeah, I um, mean, the, film, the, you, the film's probably more endeared to yourself than it is to me, but some of those shots just remind me, especially of um, Michael, um, the close-ups. It, it, there's a there's a Nightmare on Elm Street film where the guy is riding a motorbike and he turns into the motorbike. Uh, <laughs> it's a really yeah. Cool. It just slightly reminded me of that a bit. Um, you keep saying, the or you've said the word enticing, um, maybe I'm looking into it a little bit deeply. Do you think this is maybe a um, an allegory for or a metaphor for not not taking drugs or uh, not being led astray as a teenager? Do you, do you see where I'm where I'm coming from with that? I do, and, and uh, I'm not quite. I think I probably have to watch the film with that kind of mindset. But again, I think whenever you see films about vampires, and certainly in this decade of all decades, there's always that element of of, of the enticement, and it's you know how to kind of put the blockers up against that encroachment because vampires are always kind of uh, presented endearingly. In some ways, um, they might not look responsible guys to the most people in town but to Michael I bet you they look like the coolest people in Santa Carla and don't forget he's got the girl on the back of the motorcycle so he's also trying to as I say he was trying to impress her as well so I think there's always been that element with vampires um, and certainly in this case I think it works quite well for the Lost Boys 
Um, and of course, that leads us nicely into uh, what I would consider to be the best scene in the movie, which we can touch upon later, which is the initiation scene, which is really well done. It's really not so much well filmed. I don't think I'm, I'm talking about the camera work, just how, you know the atmosphere of the scene and and again, how they kind of get Michael to do the things that he does. Um, because, of course, Michael is is ignorant at this point. He doesn't know the vampires. He's still in the game of trying to impress Star. Um, and, of course, she actually tries to warn him, doesn't she? Uh, you know, don't listen to them, but he doesn't want to kind of look weak in front of these uh, macho gang members. Yeah, I think we've all been there where we've been a little bit uh, out of our depth, maybe, and uh, enticed into something by someone, and you've sort of known it's a bit wrong but you you go ahead with it anyway especially when you're younger um it's, it's also a little treat to see the 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 vampire's lair um which again looks like something out of a motley crew video there's all twisted metal everywhere and some kind of shrine to jim morrison going on in the background and all these <laughs> bobs isn't it it's a real junkyard it was interesting when they obviously bring out the chinese food and they give them the box of rice and they tell them it's maggots and then, of course, they give them a box of noodles. They tell them it's worms. <clears throat> I don't know if that's a power that, that, that the vampires have or that's just... Um, I'm not quite sure what, what, what was going on there. Is that something that they can do? It seems to be some kind of uh, supernatural uh, power of persuasion. But then I also think if they can do that in that scene, why don't they do it later on in the film to their advantage? Because I don't think it's used much else after yeah. the scene. But it is used to make him drink the wine because, of course, when he realises that it's not maggots, it actually was rice and it wasn't worms, it actually was noodles. When Star tries to tell him that it's blood, he kind of shrugs his shoulders and goes like, yeah, okay. And, of course, that's the reason why he does end up drinking the wine. So the power of persuasion worked for them, didn't it? It did, definitely. And it all helps to entice Michael into the uh, into the fold. Part of the part of the hazing process, isn't it? It does, but let's stop using the word entice. It's starting to annoy me. Uh, Draw. <laughs> but David and the gang. I'm going to keep. I keep saying David and the gang. It sounds ridiculous, but I don't know what else to call them. Are they? In fact, let's kind of focus on it now. Who are the Lost Boys? Is the implication in the name supposed to be that, like the Lost Boys of uh, Peter Pan fame, they don't grow old? You know, they always stay this way in this sort of uh, teenage kind of state, you know, providing that they uh, stay alive as vampires. Or, or yes, that is the implication. Yeah. Um, so, so there's a small group of them. Um, like I say... So it, has, it has to be David and the gang. They are the Lost Boys, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, that's it. And and Star, I guess, who's their kind of uh, acolyte or initiate. Mm. So. So the Lost Boys, of course, lead uh, Michael to the railway track, um, which was an, an interesting scene where they kind of hang underneath this railway, don't they, as, as a train passes. And again, they're testing uh, Michael's willingness to kind of go with them. Uh, is almost like a, a leap of faith, wasn't it, into the abyss? Yeah, I mean, the, the longest train in the world, it seems. So they hang on for a very, very long time. And I think Michael's the last one to drop off, isn't he? Into the he is. I mean, if you actually watch it back, he doesn't want to actually drop. He kind of hangs on for dear life until he can't hold anymore. Um, 
Because at one point he tries to pull himself back up. So he doesn't willingly take that leap of faith, which I suppose is kind of a nod to the character of Michael in that he's got, he's now drunk this wine, which of course was blood, um, but he's got this moral compass, which is going to kind of help him see the light, I suppose you could say. But as this point in the film begins the transformation, he wakes up in his bed and I think Sam walks in, doesn't he? And he asks for the sunglasses. So this is our first clue that Michael is, has begun his transformation. Yeah, I mean, again, how did he get from the the train bridge to the, uh, you know, to his bed? Was it a dream? It's not implied it was a dream, you know. It, again, there's, there's no rhyme or reason given as to how he ended up back home. Um, he's just lying there on the bed. He wants the sunglasses. And then the mom phones. She's asking for uh, him to ba- babysit uh, the younger brother so she can go out on a date for the first time. Uh, again, I just can't help but keep coming back to this is like someone who's being initiated into either a gang or groomed into a gang or groomed into using drugs. And they've had the first experience of it. Uh, and now the mind is being altered by it. You know, again, I can't help but keep coming back, and especially with the Doors' influence and the music and the poster of Jim Morrison in the last scene, that Joel Schumacher or whoever had a hand in making the film must have had some sort of uh, uh, trip when they were a younger person uh, out on the west coast of America in the late 60s, and this is just their story being told. I I just can't help but feel that all the time. No, I'm glad you're pointing it out. It's something that I've not considered, and... It's a, when you start to tell me why you think that is, it, it does make sense. So it's a really good point. Um, but you mentioned how uh, Michael reluctantly agrees to babysit Sam. And I think this was a really good point in the film because the thirst or that uh, the, the desire for blood, I think, kicks in, doesn't it? Um, is he actually approaching Sam in the bath with the intention of killing his brother? Yeah, there's a weird... Uh... There's a weird scene of him sort of uh, floating outside of the the house while the brother's um, on the phone. It's- yes, I know which one you mean. It, it, it reminds me, there was a Stephen King film. I can't remember the name of it now, but it's something similar. I think where there's like a vampire floating outside the window. It's, uh, I know which one you mean, but he, he's still after Sam, isn't he? He is, yeah, yeah. He's got that, uh, that bloodlust almost, and he feels the need for the blood, but the dog is the one who helps to protect Sam. You're right, the dog, Nan, uh, Nanook, I think the name of the dog is, which I don't know if you, you noticed, but again, is another nod to Peter Pan, uh, Nana Dog. Um, so um, that was a, another small Peter Pan reference. But I think, as you say, Nanook protects Sam. I think he bites Michael's hand, doesn't he? And um, that's the point when Sam kind of runs out. And it's an important point in the film as well, because this is the stage whereby Sam sees that his brother has no reflection. And thus you begin the fight with, you know, Sam and his brother over, is he going to turn against them? Is he going to protect them? Uh, And that kind of develops over the next half an hour. Yeah, I mean, he starts, he's acting like a little bit of a a douchebag, isn't he, at first, when he first starts to wear the the sunglasses and that. Um, But then as the scene goes on, it's almost like he... He slips back into his normal self, and he's a bit like, "Oh, I need help," uh, and that's when he's at the uh, he's in the mirror with them, like you say, and there's there's a bit of special effects there with the um, with the reflection. 
then um, Sam then legs it upstairs and locks all the doors, hides himself away in the uh, in the bedroom. Um, he's also wearing some weird kind of like Picasso night in the night robe, which I'd love to get a hold of maybe for Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but I think on the same night, Lucy's on a date with Max, isn't she? And I think Sam, I, I'm not quite sure how he comes to the conclusion, but I think not long after, he he starts to suspect Max is kind of linked to these this vampire story, isn't he? Yeah, um, because he phoned, he phoned the Frog Brothers and they say something like, you got to kill him. <laughs> yeah, they do. Um, but I think there's a point, I think there's one of the old things about a vampire is they can... Uh, never be you have to be asked to be invited into the house don't they right yes that's one of um, and of course the first clue in the film I think with Max is that he turns up for dinner uh, with Lucy and Michael answers the door and I think he kind of politely says I'm not going to come in until I'm invited uh, and he kind of sarcastically Michael kind of says you're invited um, which is of course unbeknownst to Michael is bad news for the family Ah, I never noticed that actually, yeah. yeah. Yeah, oh, did you not pick up on that? No, I didn't, no. There you go. Um, not long after, David and the gang, aka the Lost Boys, uh, take Michael to, I'm going to call it the feeding scene. Um, and I think we really need to just have a little moment on this because I would probably argue it, it, it's potentially the most gory part of the movie. Um, and it's obviously got, you know, the soundtrack um, and you see... Great use of the camera when they're kind of hibernating in this tree, and then as obviously when the the bloodlust kicks in, they kind of lean in or like peer towards the camera with these fangs and yellow contact lenses. It's brilliantly done. Yeah, the special effects in the film, the the makeup and prosthetics in particular, actually, are really, really quite quite terrifying, quite gruesome in some places. Yeah, I mean the the one abiding sort of shock that I think of when I think of this film is Kiefer Sutherland. You know in full sort of vamp, vamped out or, you know, that kind of uh, look about him. What, it shocked you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's quite scary, isn't it? It's quite quite, quite graphic. It is. He, he has this look. I don't know if it's, you know, I, I wouldn't say he's a particularly scary looking guy, but when he's got the makeup on, there is something about him, isn't there? You, you, almost, you can't imagine anyone to have looked as effective and as scary in that role than Keith Sutherland does. No, it's probably because he's got he's got like a kind of like uh like a like a puppy fat kind of face, hasn't he? Like a, a young babyish kind of face. <laughs> but when when you see him with all that stuff on. Yeah. I think uh, stars also um present in this scene and I think she whispers, doesn't she? You're not one of them until you make your first kill. So he's kind of in this um uh, how would you describe it halfway mode into becoming a, a vampire. He's not quite there, uh, which is, of course, good news for him uh, and, and the story, really. Yeah, but, he's, um, not, he's not a girl, not yet a woman. <laughs> to put Britney in our <laughs> But this is the point in the film when the Frog Brothers kind of come to the fore and um, they, they want to come together, don't they, and they want to make a plan. It's almost like Home Alone when Kevin kind of rolls up the paper and he has, like, his booby traps... Uh, the Frog Brothers are pretty similar. They have like water pistols and, and traps like that. But they all head to the vampire's lair. Um, I think it's the Frog Brothers, Michael. Uh, I don't know if Michael goes with them, actually, but Sam. Um, and, of course, they find them all sleeping because it's still daytime in Santa Carla. 
Now, was this before in, or after the uh, Michael's had his first uh, taste of of passion? Oh, look! I, do you know what? I couldn't tell you. But did you want to make a a little um, comment on that scene? Yeah, there's a really corny, uh, you know, soft focus kind of like cheesy slow motion scene where um, uh, he behind the silk behind the silk curtain. <laughs> yeah, behind the silk curtain. But then straight after that, Joel Schumacher comes right back in with the camera zooming round through the clouds. You know, I guess it's meant to imply he's had some sort of heavenly heavenly night with star. <laughs> <laughs> you put in a star performance. <laughs> you sick man. The camera's spinning um, around, you know, it's all uh, all these things that happen in this film are part of the teenage initiation, growing up, growing older, that kind of thing. Mm. Um, in the lair that they ventured into, they find all the vampires sleeping and we see the first kill of, of one of the, the Lost Boys, the driver stake through the heart of uh, Bill, uh, uh, sorry, Marco. Um, uh, and unfortunately, that's the end of him. But it's really scary because it, it kind of wakes the others up. And they, they chase them, don't they, out of this lair. Um, and, and they only just about get away. I think that David grabbed Sam's leg and he's kind of pulling him into the sun. And, and we go back to what we said before about Keith Sutherland's face. He is shit scary in this scene. Yeah, terrifying. Absolutely. It wants the sun sets. I mean, that, that's uh, unfortunately for the, the, you know, Sam and Michael, David and the others, you know, go straight to the house, don't they? It's, their time to get revenge. And this is, of course, um, where they can put the booby traps into practice. Uh, I think we see the holy water, don't they, in the water crystals. They fill the bathtub, bathtub with garlic. I think at one point, you, you see, I think, I can't remember, uh, there's an, an, a corny line, isn't it? Death by stereo. I don't think that was part <laughs> of the, the, the booby traps, but it comes up. Um, and we see, I think over the next five minutes, the slow demise of these lost boys one by one. Um, considering how scary they are, I suppose you could argue that they were they were killed pretty easily, weren't they? Yeah, I agree. Um, who is it? Um, is it? It's not Wesley, is it? Um, oh, what's his name? Not, not, um, not Alex Winter, the other guy. Uh, so the the Lost Boys' names were David, who was Keith Sutherland. Yeah. Marco was uh, Bill S. Preston Esquire, and the other two were Dwayne and Paul, Dwayne. I believe. Dwayne, that was it. Dwayne, yeah, yeah. Does he get a, a stake through his heart or uh, pushed onto uh, some some spikes or something like that? I think one of them gets pushed into the, the bath with garlic, but it's, it's covered in holy water. Right. Um, I think you're right. One of them gets like a, I think it's a bow and arrow through the heart, right. and, and then he kind of falls into the stereo and he's he's electrocuted. Um, and of course, after that, only David remains, and thus leads us into the the final showdown with Michael. Um, and again, it's not the longest fight, but I think it's it's quite well done. You've got them both kind of floating in the air. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Flying around, um, flying across the room. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. <laughs> um, well, it, it culminates in David being thrown against the, the horns of, I suppose it's, it's one of Grandpa's uh, old stuffed collections, isn't it? Yeah, that's it. Is, is it on the wall? Yes, that's right. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking of, like the bull horns or something. Yeah. Um, but interestingly, Michael is still a vampire, and I think there was a reference earlier in the film that if you kill the head vampire, then anyone who's not quite there, aka Michael, would would be saved. 
Um, but he's still a vampire, so something's not right. The head vampire is still out there, isn't he? Or she? Well, yeah, because if you think about it, you know, if they were the only four vampires in the entire world, then that's the entire um, species or race of vampires completely gone if they're dead. So there has to be um, others out there. Um, you know, the guy who, uh, is it Max, the, the one who goes out with the mom? She, yes. um, when 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 uh, David dies, he goes over and sort of tenderly holds his face, doesn't he? Um, just as he's dead. Uh, and it's, it's obviously there's an implication that he is the is involved is mm. by himself. Um, yeah, and of course Max is the secret that David was protecting all along. I think that was the line. I can't remember who said it, but um, I think the film does a good job of kind of making slight nods to the fact that Max maybe is suspicious, but much like in the sixth sense where. When you watch it back, you know, things appear quite obvious. But the first time you watch The Lost Boys, and it's difficult for people like us to to know that now because it's it's so etched in our memory. I don't think you can recall the first time. But I think the first instance of Max being involved with The Lost Boys is them being in a shop and him telling them to get out of here. So there's this disconnect. And the film does that quite cleverly. It's kind of distancing the what we will ultimately become the head vampire from who we thought to be the actual antagonist to the film. I think even at one point he, he walks to his house and you can hear them all in the, in the sky and like a bat kite lands at the feet of Max. Right, yeah. So you kind of start to think these are terrorising Max as well. And I think you can really give the filmmakers credit and the story writers credit for that because, I mean, it's a little bit of misdirection, isn't it? Yeah, um, also coming back, there's probably something there in, you know, the way when you're young, you kind of, like your parents are, are like, you know, they may as well be uh, Martians, you know, they're so, they seem so different and you seem so cool and you seem so different and, uh, you know, so it's like he's a different generation of vampire and he's, he's it's sort of implied that he's this sort of old folkish type guy. Um not fogish because he runs the video shop, so we've got a little bit of cool, a little bit of street cred. But it, it's saying that he's he, he's clearly not like the Lost Boys. He doesn't look like them, doesn't dress like them, that sort of stuff. And he doesn't look like a vampire until, obviously, he has that transformation at the end of the film. Um, which, which, interestingly enough, he's the worst-looking vampire out of all of them. He's, the, he's, he's almost comical, isn't he? Yeah, he looks like uh, like like Herman Munster or uh, Lurch off the Adams Family or something like that. It just doesn't look right. Now, and he's got this big smile. I agree. It's like, I love the character and, you know, Max is great and it's it's a nice twist. But I do think the makeup could have been done slightly better on that. Um, and of course, this is the point when Max says, um, don't invite a vampire into your house. It renders you powerless, um, which obviously is it talks about what we said earlier when Michael uh, ignorantly invites uh, Max into the house. Um, and again, we come back to the question of motive. You know, what was it about this family? And I think Max says something, doesn't he? He says he always wanted uh, Lucy to be the mother of his, I think he calls them his children. Um, I don't think he means in a biological sense. Um, and, and then he wanted kind of um, Michael and, and Sam. And I think he, he builds it as one big happy family. So, I mean, there was the motive, at least from the head vampire's perspective. Right. It all makes sense now. It does. And then, of course, Grandpa uh, comes to the rescue. The uh, the hero of the day turns out to be the grandpa, 
he drives in, doesn't he? You hear his uh, the horn of his of his vehicle, um, and and he drives through, doesn't he? And it kind of I don't, I'm not quite sure how it happens, but it it, it releases on 10, 15 stakes into the air, uh, and one of which goes right through the heart of conveniently goes right through the heart of uh, of the head vampire, uh, thus <laughs> yeah. thus saving the day and and turning Michael back into his human form. Um, and then, of course, the the grandpa kind of has the last word, doesn't he? Yeah, so just before that, the the, the camera sort of zooms in at the end of one of these spikes, uh, like like the eye in the Evil Dead too. Um, and then just to add to overkill, the the whole fireplace explodes. So there's no there's not one shred of anything of, of Paul Max left. Uh, but yeah, Grandpa does have the the last uh, the last word. Would you like to reveal JD what he says? I can't remember it precisely, but if you've got the actual full quote, I'd love to hear it. Okay, I can't remember the exact quotes off the top of my head, I'm sorry, but it's words to the effect of... Something about something in Santa Carla, I couldn't stomach. All the damn vampires. That's it, yeah, yeah, yeah. Too many damn vampires. <laughs> so what, what? why does the film end on this note? Is this just a bit of comic relief or... Is it giving us a wider story? Because the, the, the grandpa's obviously in the know here. Again, it's just implying that we might think that the older generation are, uh, you know, not quite with it, not quite hip. But actually, grandpa's been there, seen it all, done it all, experienced everything. It's a bit like a Tom Bombadil character. <laughs> <laughs> he, he lives his life without a care in the world. I mean, he's more preoccupied with Widow Johnson than the... <laughs> The, the vampires of Santa Carla, but uh, anyway, that that completes the uh, the roundup of the last book. But any final thoughts on the story before we move on? It's it's certainly a unique um, take on vampirism because uh, I know now, obviously down the line, we've had Buffy the Vampire Day, which was heavily influenced by by this. But before it, you know, the vampire. What do you think of Hammer House of Horrors? Christopher Lee, the Cape. You know the 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 widow's peak haircut, the fangs. I want to drink your blood. Um, the uh, uh, the count from Sesame Street. The count from Sesame Street. The Bella, <laughs> the Bella Lugosi, um, school of vampirism. You know, so it was quite different taking that idea and putting it onto uh, a younger, um, a younger audience. It's definitely something a new direction. And I'd like to maybe come back to this um, theme in our. Uh, in our legacy part, please. Yeah, no, I'm glad you touched upon that. I mean, the 80s vampire movie almost is like a genre of itself. There was something about the era and, and uh, the rebellious nature of, of, of teenagers, you know, uh, you know, the, as you were talking about before, the motorcycle, the leather jackets, the, the rock and roll. There's something about that that ties into vampires. And I don't know why that works well, but it does. And... In a way, you could almost argue that we've, we haven't veered too far from that even now, 30, 40 years later. We still kind of look to that as like the inspiration of Vampire. We don't see many throwbacks to the Hammer Horror style. Um, but I'm, no, I'm glad you touched upon it. I agree with you. Movie trivia. Okay, first one for me, Jeff Dog. Did you notice that David was the only vampire out of the gang not to disintegrate? The reason being was that he wasn't supposed to die. It was filmed with the intention of bringing him back in a Lost Boys sequel, but it never materialised. 
Ah, okay. So I'm thinking now of about 10 years down the line, um, Schumacher, you might have found this in your research, was looking at perhaps producing a, uh, a sequel called The Lost Girls. And I would maybe imagine David as being some as, as in charge of this uh, this brood, you know, um, being the boss of those, a bit like the Max character as he was older. Um, but actually, yeah, I hadn't noticed that. Uh, all the others did. They did the uh, they disintegrated, didn't they? Um, in in one way or another. So um, David didn't. He was just sort of laying there, apparently dead. Um, by yeah. The- uh, here's another one for me. There was supposed to be uh, a post-credit scene that never saw the light of day uh, because of budget cuts. Uh, apparently, the scene would have been a group of teenagers finding the tunnel where the vampire slept, uh, and they come across a mural uh, from the turn of the century uh, depicting Max on some sort of boardwalk, wearing a straw hat and talking to a group of young men. It obviously didn't happen because of budget cuts, but I, even still, I still don't know why they would have chosen that. It, I don't think it, it... I think they could have done a lot better ideas other than showing a mural of Max because would that have implied that he's still alive? Or would it have just been teenagers have stumbled upon the lair? Here's this painting. Um, I don't know if it was kind of nodding to the fact that there was going to be a sequel, but either way, it, it, it uh, obviously never materialised. So the poster would have been something from years ago? It was the turn of the century, yeah, so I imagine like 1900s. So was that just Obviously, to imply that Max had been alive forever? I, I suppose so. Yeah. But uh, it never made any either way. Here's one for you. Did you know that one of the more trickier scenes was the Chinese food scene? Uh, in particular, the box of maggots. You see, maggots, it turns out, don't really move without some sort of motivation. Uh, so in between takes one of the crew had to squeeze lemon juice onto them to get them wriggling about. Now, I don't know where that where that stands with, you know, the likes of the RSPCA and things like that, but that was what they did. This was the 80s. I'm sure they wouldn't squeeze lemon juice on maggots now. Maybe it's good for them. I'm not sure, but I thought that was interesting. I always assumed maggots, if you were to put them in a box, would they just wriggled? Well, have you ever put lemon juice on your maggot, JD? Plenty of times, mate. You've got to try <laughs> 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 is it um, afterwards? Always does, mate. Always does. <laughs> it, it, it don't need lemon juice. For that. <laughs> um, but did you know that it wriggled? And the maggots. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't know that actually. Oh, right. Let let let's move on. Um, a little bit of foreshadowing uh, for this one, uh, and it comes right at the start of the movie uh, on the merry-go-round. But the order that the vampires first appear on screen is the same order that they meet their maker, only in reverse. David, Dwayne, Paul, and then Marco. And there's further foreshadowing kind of in, in, later on in the film. Uh, I think it's Edgar Frog says the line, no two, no two vampires go the same way. Some yell and scream, some go quietly, some explode, some implode. And I think that was really clever and, and, and obviously worked into the story. I don't know if you picked up on those two. No, I didn't pick up on it, but it's a nice touch, actually, that, uh, you know, they've clearly thought about that and thought it through. I like that. Uh, th- that was it for me on there, um... Okay. I said, did you know then, I did mention that Schumacher tried to develop his own sequel called The Lost Girls, um, but in the end, uh, Warner Brothers actually never, ever produced that. 
However, did you know that they did, and I didn't know this until I read into it, did you know that they did produce not one but two sequels to The Lost Boys that are out there? Yes, I did. Uh, unfortunately, so. Were they straight to DVD? They were straight to DVD. I think there was a, a period about 10, 15 years ago where um, movie um, studios were looking at their back catalogues and were producing things on, on lower budgets and releasing them straight to DVD. Um, now, of course, this was before Netflix and things like that, but there was, um, you know, there was a, a Scarface um, sequel produced. You know, you think, like, these are films that have got a um, quite big following. Like, why would they do that? You know, the, surely there'd be a big enough market, market to uh, release it cinem- cinematically, you know? Maybe I don't know. There must have been financial reasons for it, though. But yeah, there were two sequels. One was called uh, The Tribe. That was in 2008. And Corey Feldman was in that one. Corey Haim was in it in a cameo. And I think I think he gets quite top billing, but was only in it for you know a minute or two. And that was followed in 2010 by uh, The Lost Boys: The Thirst. And in that one, um, there was the return of Alan Frog. And neither of them were very very well received, to be honest. No, I mean, I mean, we can touch upon this more when we get to our movie legacy. It's surprising, isn't it, given, you know, how much of a success and how well-received The Lost Boys was. But, um, yeah, no, it's uh, something I was unfortunately aware of. And, uh, yeah, I, I actually haven't seen them, so, I, you know, I'm wrong to kind of dismiss them. But I think we can rest assured, given, you know, the feedback that they weren't great. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, did you know that... Corey Feldman's character was based on action heroes of the day. Uh, he had a conversation with the director and uh, asked him how he wanted them to play the part. And he said, basically, just go and rent all the Stallone and Chuck Norris films that you can and play the play the part like that. He's quite deadpan and he's got that voice and things. I don't know. Corey Feldman, uh, he's, he's very boyish, isn't he? He doesn't quite have the screen, screen presence of a Rambo or... I uh, say Chuck Norris in uh, Mission Missing in Action or uh, Delta Force. Put it this way, I couldn't imar- imagine uh, Corey Feldman being buried buried alive in his truck uh, and then pouring a beer over his head and then driving the truck out of the grave. <laughs> <laughs> but, but Corey Feldman's interesting. He, he, he can kind of, I think I feel like I've seen him do this role in another film. Uh, I'm not quite sure what it is, but it, it didn't seem unusual for me to see him act like this. He's never had that performance he's always been um, I think other than maybe Stand By Me off the top of my head but all of his roles do seem that kind of like not too serious character don't they yeah well I mean I'm thinking of um, this character in The Babes when they have a sort of like militaristic kind of uh, operation going on to check out the mm. that's what I'm thinking of when he's got all of the, the gadgets and things and the uh, you know, the, the different uh, weaponry to fight the vampires. That's what I'm thinking of. Um, oh, but yeah, I mean, did, did, following on from that then, uh, did you know that Corey Feldman was actually, um, he was actually struggling with drug abuse uh, at that age. I think he was only about 16 or 17 at the time. And he had been sacked um, from the from the set because uh, he kept dozing off and he just couldn't carry on filming. Um, so so he, he got sacked. Uh, he got fired. Um, the next day, he apologized. He said, "They'll never do it again." And then he, he was able to, um, you know, to, you know, get himself together 
for the rest of the film at least but such a young lad with uh, so many so many issues and so many so many problems you do feel sorry for some of these child actors you do wonder are they are they too young for um you know for for the limelight and the lifestyle that they live at such a young age you know I think it with someone like Cody Feldman, it was almost like the the perfect storm or the imperfect storm, you could call it. He was a child star, arguably one of the worst times he could have been. You know that that era of filmmaking where there was there was a lot of drugs, you know, on the in these studios and producers and whatnot. And of course, you you had the, the claims of abuse, but we won't go down that road. The unfortunate thing for Cody Feldman is, of course, following the eighties, he was never the same and he's kind of he's a product of that era and he'll never escape that but yeah it's sad hey it's movie feedback time okay thanks as always to everyone that, that sent a tweet our way always great to you know have some feedback for these episodes first one came in from jimmy rossoni at the big ragu 215 who said classic movie in my top five horrors and the soundtrack is even better should we touch upon the soundtrack briefly since Jimmy's brought it up? I adore it. I think it is one of the, the best soundtracks I can recall from certainly my group of favourite films. I mean, what was your thoughts on it? Are you familiar with the soundtrack? Yeah, thanks, Jimmy. Uh, the, 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 you did you did bring up something we have barely even touched upon yet, is the, the quality soundtrack in the film. It plays almost like an extended music video at times, this film. A lot of the songs are cover versions very decent cover versions as well. Uh, we've got Good Times by In Excess, Lost in the Shadows by Lou Graham, who I think was the lead singer of Foreigner. Roger Dolce from The Who singing Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me. Uh, People Are Strange by, uh, local to us anyway, Echo and the Bunnymen. There's a guy called Tim Capello on the soundtrack singing a song called I Still Believe. Now I think I Still Believe that Tim Capello is the guy singing with the saxophone, the saxophone guy. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure he was like a backing dancer for like, t- or in the Tina Turner band. I don't know if that was something you were aware of. Yeah, he apparently, um, you know, because you, 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 when you're researching this stuff, you go and find out who these people are. I think he was a, a top musician himself, you know, like serious musician, um, mm-hmm. graduate kind of level. So uh, yeah, he also just happened to look like Davy Boy Smith. <laughs> He did. I mean, what a career. He ended up, you know, going to Wembley and pinning Bret Hart in front of 92,000 fans. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, no, thank you for that, Jimmy. Next one came in from Louis or Lewis Ream at Louis underscore Ream. The Lost Boys is one of the first DVDs I collected. It's one of my top five favourite vampire movies. Great cast, great soundtrack. What other film features the band Echo and the Bunnymen? The only negative is that the sequels never should have seen the light of day. And there's a few things that we can kind of touch upon there. I mean, Lost Boys was also, I think, one of the first DVDs I collected. In fact, I'm pretty sure it may have been my, my first DVD. Um, he said it's one of my top five favourite vampire movies. And this, I think, comes back to what we said before, that it's it's almost its own genre. Um, I suppose off the top of my head, um, the Lost Boys, definitely top three. Um, the only other one that I think maybe rivals it I don't know if you've seen Fright Night from 1985. Similar era, of course, and, and, and again, an amazing soundtrack. But yeah, I mean, Echo and the Bunnymen. And again, uh, this one touches upon the sequels, Never Should Have Seen the Light Today. I think I think that's going to be a, a general consensus, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, um, well, okay, so it wasn't exactly uh, my first 
uh, DVD. However, there's a tenuous link there in that um, Richard Donner, who produced the film, also directed Lethal Weapon 4, which was the first DVD I owned. And I don't know whether you've got it, it may still even have some of these DVDs, JD. You know the ones in the sort of cardboard case with a plastic clip on the side? That's, that was The Lost Boys I had. Ah, right. Okay, well, so The Lost Boys was released on DVD in 1999. So it was definitely one of the early releases. And the early DVDs did come, often came in those, uh, um, those cardboard style cases. I've got a couple of DVDs from that era of late 90s. Um, Blade Runner's one, uh, Lethal Weapon 4 is another one. I've got one or two others as well. Um, but yeah, The Lost Boys, definitely one of the first DVD releases. So when people say, you know, it's the first film they own on DVD, it's more than likely that it would have been one that came with the DVD player, perhaps, or it was a promotional copy, or there just weren't that many films out to buy. So that would have been one of the ones that people would have got. Yeah, I, I, do you know what? I really liked those old cardboard covers with the you know the plastic clip. I thought they were really good. I, can't, I think my Masters of the Universe was one like that as well. They, they often have their special features as um, scene selection and interactive. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> what year are we talking? Did you say late nineties? Have we had DVDs yeah, that long? Not, um, yeah, I mean DVD players. I'm sure came out uh, as in look, existed. You're looking about ninety seven, ninety eight. But in terms of a mass market item that people actually owned, it wouldn't have been until 2000 and then going into the early 2000s that they became a mass media. Um, I can certainly remember that, that that era very, very clearly. And I'm sure you do too as well, that, that change that we saw. But yeah, I mean, it, for that DVD to actually come out in 1999 tells me it would have been one of the very, very, very earliest ones. Mm, interesting. Um, Bong Ripper, Jack Tripper at Lebody one of our regular contributors, J-Dog, said the first film featuring the two Corys, great vampire film and great twist on the Peter Pan story, a classic favourite of mine, great choice. Um, and you, I did think you mentioned, didn't you, that it was the first of the two, uh, the two Corys films. Uh, I know they were, I'm not quite sure how many they did, but um, I think if not the same year or a bit later on, they had their licence to drive, which I'd love to do maybe some point this season to another favourite of mine. Um, and he also references the, the, the twist on the Peter Pan story. Uh, and I'm sure if we kind of spent a bit of time looking at the film with that uh, perspective, we'd probably have picked up a lot more. But other than the title and some of the nods with the names, it is kind of, uh, you know, woven into the story. Can't You can tell, can't you? Yeah, thanks, uh, Bong Ripper, Jack Tripper. I really appreciate you sticking by us, uh, pal. That means a lot. Uh, yeah, it was the first, uh, the first, Two Corys film, followed by License to Drive, as you say, JD. They also had Dream a Little Dream, Blown Away. They were also in uh, National Lampoon's Last Resort. Uh, you're talking about the 90s now. They also both appeared separately. Now, this is really geeky. I don't know if anybody listening was ever into this, but there was a... a uh, <laughs> I used to watch this, and I was actually an adult at the time, but it was a really good series. It was full of little nods and references to things from the past that you think, even though this is a, ch a children's series, it's going to go away with the kid's head. It was called Big Wolf on Campus, and it was about a, were a guy who turned into a werewolf. And he had this friend who drove around in a funeral hearse, and he was the one who was into, like, real cult uh, films, and he made loads of references to old films, like Lost Boys and all that sort of stuff. The two Corys were actually in that. Uh, not together, but but in separate episodes. That, that's just reminded me, actually. It's been 
God, it must be about 20 years since I've seen that. But uh, Yeah, and I can recall it as well. You know the one, Big Wolf on Campus? I, I do, yeah. I remember it very well. John Faisy at Jig98. First vampire movie I ever watched when I was a kid and still watch it now after all these years and still my favourite. And, and that's something we haven't touched upon is the, the rewatchability. And, and Lost Boys has certainly got that, hasn't it? Oh, yeah, 100%. Because of the scenes and the busyness of, of, of the scenes, there's always something to notice each time. And because of the nice little nods and touches that are in there, and also the 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 things that we mentioned before about Max, that you can go and rewatch it and uh, not forget of the, about the fact that he was the, the leader or the, he was a vampire, the twist or whatever, but certainly enjoy it and appreciate it and, and look at it in a different light. Uh, but those characters are like iconic characters that you can just go back and revisit. You know, I can watch The Terminator again and again because, you know, I love The Terminator. I can watch Bill and Ted because I love Bill and Ted and all the characters in the film. But they are kind of iconic characters and there's something about them that's quite uh, attractive, isn't it? Uh, and um, as uh, as characters and as, as movie icons, so to speak. Yeah, you know, you're right. I mean, I know you uh, you, you loved your Terminator. Have you still got the Dark Fate Terminator poster on the wall? Shh, don't tell anyone about that. <laughs> <laughs> Cooper at KPA421 said, it's my favourite movie of all time. It's also the greatest vampire movie of all time. It has the greatest one-liner of all time as well, which was, holy shit, it's the attack of Eddie Munster. <laughs> <laughs> it's that sort of character we obviously haven't touched upon, which was the little kid that was obviously with the uh, as, as part of the Lost Boys clan. But at one point he comes in and like, starts trying to like, bite them. He, That's right, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love that line, what about Eddie Munster? The podcast that wouldn't die at... T podcast TW Die uh, said it's a classic for the sax alone. And again, this comes back to the saxophone guy. I mean, he, he he's got his own legacy. He has, yeah. He's definitely got sax appeal, that guy, hasn't he? Very, very much so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, George's Gale at Paris Janet 4 said, Yes, a big fan. My favourite horror movie with a fantastic soundtrack. Scary, but with a great sense of humour. And again, another you know nice tweet, something that we haven't touched upon, is the blending of the, the genres. I mean, it's undoubtedly got the horror elements, but it's kind of woven into you know a bit of comic relief. Uh, what what else is Lost Boys offering you? Well, we've talked about this before. How um, you could, there was a certain genre of films that could only possibly have been made in the eighties, films like uh, Gremlins and, and uh, the Babes and so on. And it's definitely in in that same vein and that same mold. Um, it's got action. It's got romance. It's got uh, the word I'm trying to think of is the, the being pulled into something. The and I'm and I'm not and I'm avoiding the enticement, JD, deliberately. That's why <laughs> it's the the lure of of something different that seems naughty, that seems bad, that seems that you shouldn't do. You know, you come from this wholesome family. Um, there's something out there in this strange place. You know, you 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 want to you want to explore. You know, you want to go and be rebellious. That's that's the teenage uh, dream, isn't it? That's why it's so popular with teens because everybody wants to be rebellious. Some people carry it on into into later years, um, <laughs> as you say, often, JD. Uh, but it is it's the it's it's the action. It's the 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 vampirism, the supernatural. It's it's got a little bit of everything, a little bit of something for everyone. Yeah, you're quite right. Yo.
It's the movie quiz. Question one, Jeff Dog. I chose this question just because it kind of goes back to something you said um, earlier on about the busyness of the scenes. Um, and I'm in particular, I'm talking about Sam's bedroom. Um, an interesting bedroom. Uh, he actually has a poster of uh, someone on his closet door. Can you recall who it was? Arnold Schwarzenegger. No, it was actually Rob Lowe, um, 80s uh, star, um, which I imagine may have had something to do with the fact that he worked with Joel Schumacher on St. Elmo's Fire. Fire, yeah. It's an interesting poster, really. He's kind of got like a white vest and he's pulling it up almost halfway. It's almost like a crop top to reveal his abdomen. I thought it was unusual, but the bedroom itself, I mean, it's it's a feast for the eyes. Everywhere you look, there's like little gimmicky little things on the wall. He's got a clock watch. Yeah. Um, not, to men- not to mention that all the uh, stuffed animals by his grandpa. <laughs> Did, uh, I didn't have one, but certainly a, a family, a close relative had one of those back in the day. Uh, um, if you don't know what we're talking about, folks, it's, the, uh, it's a clock that looks like the dial of a watch. And a watch strap that basically goes the length of your wall. <laughs> they were pretty cool, weren't they? Yeah. Uh, question two. When Sam is in the comic book store with the Frog Brothers, he tells them that they shouldn't be putting Superman number 77 alongside the 200s. But why? <sighs> okay, right. I might not get this exactly right, but it's words to the effect of because red kryptonite hasn't been invented yet or hasn't been hasn't appeared yet. Spot on. Oh, I think that's the first one got right in half a dozen episodes. I think you're right. Uh, so, yeah, well, good one. Yeah, they haven't discovered red kryptonite. kryptonite. Uh, and a final question for me. What's the reason Sam thinks his grandpa may have a TV? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, because he's got a TV guide. Yeah, I love that scene. He says uh, he tells them not to take the sticker off the TV guide, doesn't he? He's like, so you have a TV guide? Do you have a TV? No, I just like to read the TV guide. You read the TV guide, you don't need a TV. <laughs> Brilliant, I love it. Go on, fire away. Okay, so you pinched one of my questions or, or mentioned it, should I say. It was the one about the name of Sam's dog. Uh, so I've had to have a little think about my uh, question here, okay? Um, so uh, my question is, uh, a bit of a preamble first. This is the second film to star Corey Feldman as the, the hero and Kiefer Sutherland as the villain. The other film was made the year before in 1986. Can you name that film? It's got to be Stand By Me. It was Stand By Me. I'm, I'm, I'm arguably Corey Fieldman's best performance too. I've never seen Stand By Me. Let me just, just let, we're going to just have 10 seconds of silence, even just for the listeners. I'm sure they'll appreciate this too. Okay, let, let's, let's cut the 10 seconds, but I think you get the, <laughs> yeah, you get the rationale as to why I'm, like that, that must be remedied, and I'm I'm glad you told me because we can do that for uh, at some point in season two. But you are in for a treat, and as I say, it's Corey Fieldman's best performance. And again, you've got Keith Sutherland who is on top form, still intimidating character again. But I look forward to hearing your thoughts on that. Um, but uh, another question from you: 
Okay, um, uh, the first scene, the security guard. Where did he tell them to stay away from? Uh, what well, did the security guard comes in and says, I thought I told you guys to stay away from the... Yes. Well, I imagine he was going to say uh, boardwalk. And the boardwalk, well done. There you go. And, Found that one. Yeah, well done. And lastly, JD, you asked me a question about the comics. I'm going to ask you a question about the comics too. What comic book is Sam looking for when he first meets the Frog Brothers? Was it Batman number four? Oh, I'll give you that, JD. It was Batman number 14, actually. However, oh, nice. I think you're, in your answer, you, you, you're, um, you're closer than you think, actually, because um, what Sam actually says is that there are only four of them, but he's always looking out for the other three. That's right, yes. I remember that one now. It's a very serious book, man. <laughs> <laughs> Favourite movie scene? I think mine would have to be the uh, initiation. It just has everything. It's the atmosphere. And when I say the initiation scene, I'm talking about from the point when they start racing on the motorbikes right up until the point when he kind of wakes up in his bed and thus begins the transformation. But those five, ten minutes where he's kind of being lured in uh, by the Lost Boys and enticed with, with the Chinese food, you're almost, I don't know if you get this, but when you're watching people eat on a film, and even Chinese food or pizza, you always want some. And I don't know if that's just me, but I always get that. I'm thinking of the beginning of E.T. when they're all having pizza in Mum's kitchen. And you always kind of thought, I want to be there eating pizza with them. And I think there's something about this scene of being kind of presented with this Chinese food. You almost want to tuck in with them. It's like, there's something there. I don't know if that was the in, intent of the filmmakers, but the mise-en-scene, as we like to say, um, the the actual layer where the vampires are, it's so well done. It's such a great scene and a great setting. And um, obviously, as I say, this is the point in the film when obviously Michael, unfortunately for him, for him drinks the, the, the blood and, and starts to, his journey into becoming a vampire. But I just think it's, it's so well done and, then it's kind of followed up with the, the scene with the train. That's really spooky. And, and I think in particular when he's on his own and the others have kind of dropped into the into the smoke and it's just him, you can almost just hear like a, a faint wind and you can hear the voices of the Lost Boys just kind of uh, very gently shouting his name, Michael, Michael. And I think uh, we hear the name Michael, don't we, about 200 times in the film. But <laughs> I think the word that comes to mind when I think of those five, ten minutes is atmosphere. It's pure atmosphere. And I think it's it, it just always stuck with me as a kid growing up. And maybe that's my favourite scene. Okay, well, I mean, you've put it so well and so clearly that I can't really add much more to that. Um, I, I'm going to have to actually agree with you that that is uh, my favourite scene to the initiation. However, I would just minus the... Uh, the motorbike scene, um, as I've already for reasons that I've already mentioned, um, I do feel that the the scene with the in the lair is very very effective and uh, has an incredible use of uh, the mise en scene. 
and cinematography and uh, the, the, the ideas and the way it plays with you as the audience, the plays with the character and we don't know what's quite going on. I think you've said it quite well and I would agree with you that, that, that that's the best scene. Great stuff. Movie legacy. Okay, Jeff Dog. other than being a, a beloved film of the 80s, um, and you would have thought the opportunity to have a great franchise. For some strange reason, and I'm not quite sure what it is, The Lost Boys remains family in the 80s. It's Yes, it's had two underwhelming sequels in the 21st century. I think you mentioned them earlier, The Tribe and The Thirst. Um, and of course, there was a, a, an original idea for a sequel called The Lost Girls. But other than that, it's kind of been dead as a dodo as uh, certainly in, in the idea of a franchise it just remains a beloved classic and you know it, it certainly doesn't hinder the lost boys i mean you speak now about people's favorite 80s movies most people kind of put the lost boys in the top five many would argue it's the the best of the 80s so it certainly doesn't suffer from not having follow-up films and, and, and follow-up stories uh, interestingly enough i think there is actually a tv series plan for the CW network you know me and and, and yourself um, we don't really like anything that kind of gets made 20 30 years later the, the successes are a few and far between so um we will wait and see with the lost boys but what are your thoughts on the lost boys as it stands today okay so i mean i just can't can't you've touched on it but i can't believe that this material has not already been uh taken because it's 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 ripe ground 100% ever since the twilight saga uh vampires and werewolves have been very much pushed back into the forefront again it's a topic that is constantly popular with um teenagers because it's got as we've said a little bit of everything in it and there's the the law there's the um the the, the seductiveness there's the being pulled into something. There's, there's just something there that for teenagers is really, really ripe ground. Uh, at the moment, or in the past couple of years, there has been a, um, a Teen Wolf series, which has been quite different from um, the film, which we've talked about in a previous episode. It's been very much in that Riverdale slash Twilight kind of Buffy the Vampire Slayer um, world, dark, dark side of being in high school. Um, you know, so you've got the mix of um, what life's like as a teenager and coming to deal with all of those normal things on top of the supernatural elements. And that is just such right ground for um, for a TV series, especially in the, the era that we're in now with Netflix and um, uh, God, Amazon, you name it. You know, they've all got one now, haven't they? Disney and Amazon and all the rest of it. You mentioned the CW. That's, um, I think that's Warner Brothers' own um own version of that so i i would expect i'm very very surprised that they haven't already um had that out there because that just seems to me something that they should have done a number of years ago now um in terms of a legacy yeah okay we've had the dud sequels but i just think the the impact that it's had on the teen supernatural market i've said buffy the vampire slayer uh, i really do feel that this is something which um has set the mold now for that kind of um, teenage supernatural thriller or uh, lifestyle kind of film or TV series, should I say, in, in the times that we're in now. 
So it's definitely got a lasting legacy there and, and an impact on um, shows that we see now about vampires, werewolves, zombies, be it, be it whatever, definitely. No, well said. Um, I, I think it's it's a matter of uh, a when and not if when it comes to The Lost Boys. You, you hit the nail on the head. It, it's ripe for picking. Um, sooner or later, we're going to see something. And whether it works, I'm not entirely sure. By all accounts, I believe Team Wolf is actually quite well received. It's not something that um, I've, I've actually watched myself, but by all accounts, from at least what, from what I've read, it, it is meant to have been, you know, quite successful. So we'll wait and see. But um, like I said, the Lost Boys, um, the soundtrack, people recognise it instantly. Um, the, the posters, the, the, the story, people just are so familiar with it. Um, and, 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 you know, as I say, we're going back to 1987. So it, it's a testament to the film that, you know, without sequels and without anything follow up, that it's still hold and, and held in, in the regard that it is. Um, and that leads us uh, with speaking to what regards it's held in very nicely onto the all-important mark out of 10. And I think maybe what I'm going to start doing, J-Dog, to make things a bit interesting, and I'm going to do this from the next episode, is instead of giving things a mark out of 10, well, in fact, I'm going to let you give something a mark out of 10, but I'm also going to create our first uh, leaderboard, 80s movie leaderboard. Uh, and we're going to kind of, I think we, we did 21 films in season one, so I'm going to, kind of get you to try and fit them into a leaderboard um, and then we'll obviously squeeze in the Lost Boys. But uh, first off the bat, what would you say for a mark out of 10? I think if we, if, when you watch it again now, um, it does hold up extraordinarily well. And as I've just mentioned there, in terms of the legacy, and I just feel it feels very current still and it feels very much... Um, I mean, there's still some scenes, obviously, in the styles and things that are of their time. But it's a very well made, a very well directed film, and also it's got a real visual style that's quite unique. Uh, on top of that, very memorable characters, memorable story. It's cheesy in parts, but not over, not egregiously cheesy. Um, a lot of actors, Kiefer Sutherland, uh, notwithstanding, sort of had a early successes with it. Um, some some actors went on to be in a couple of things, like Alex Winter, for example. Jason Patrick, but not massive, massive success, shall we say. I'm going to have to give it a 10 out of 10, JD, because I think it's an excellent film. There goes another 10 out of 10 for our collection. As I say, we've got quite a few now. But yeah, what we'll do is, uh, and I might put this out on the Twitter page, is to kind of start putting together the leaderboard and where we think. And it might cause a bit of controversy, I'm sure. You know, that that's the thing about opinions and um, some someone was like, how can you put Bill and Ted above weird science and whatnot but we, we'll have a bit of fun with that um, but that wraps up what has been episode one of our second season of the Circuit of Time 80s movie review podcast like I say check us out on Twitter we are at Circuit of Time and we are on Instagram as well Circuit of Time 80 um, so please do give those pages a look thanks to anyone that's uh, spent the time and listened to the episode Thanks again to all those people who, who, who contributed with the tweets and the feedback. We really appreciate it. J-Dog, any final words? Uh, just to say that it's a pleasure to be back with season two. And I'm so glad that we, all of our listeners have been sticking by us. And uh, we've got a lot more content coming up for you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for your comments. And thank you, JD. 
It's been uh, a delight. Couldn't have said it better. Uh, right, we will all see you next time for another episode of The Circuits of Time. See you next time, Dirt Bags.